Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Phil Taub and Dave Tilly. Hi, this is Phil Taub, and I'm joined by my good friend, David Tilly, for another Homeland Heroes Salute. And we are really, really happy to be able to welcome U.S. Army Captain Ginger Munson, who's joining us today. Ginger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great, great to have you here. And uh, we're going to jump right into it. You know, tell us about, you know, the thought process, why you joined the Army in particular, and uh, how all that came about. Sure. So um, as sometimes happens in life, you know, great opportunities come from um, unique or unexpected situations. And when I was in college, at the time I was um, living in Washington State and going to college in California. And actually, I came home one summer and my father's work situation had changed and it looked like I wouldn't be able to go back to this private out-of-state college. And my father had been in Air Force ROTC and he encouraged me to take a look and see what I thought. And maybe um, that could not only be something that I would enjoy, but also help finance the rest of my college career. And so I went back to school that fall and signed up for military science classes through the ROTC program at Santa Clara University. And um, just kind of jumped right in and really loved it. I, I loved it. Um, they had classes on leadership, classes on map reading, we did some sessions where you would learn proper drill and ceremony. We had physical training two or three times a week. Um, wonderful group of students. Our on-campus group was probably, I think, maybe around 35 individuals. But then we also gathered people from two local universities, which they do sometimes with ROTC to have a bigger, you know, unit. And um, so we had some people from San Jose State University and Stanford. And so we had a we had a good size unit of students that would um, that were part of the program. And I went through that first year just as a volunteer and, you know, student and then loved it. And I applied for a scholarship and stayed with the program. And, and you know, as the saying goes, the rest is history. I, I just I, I loved it. I had great opportunity during the summertime. You'd go to different active duty posts and you would get exposure to all the different branches. So this is the army. So there's, um, you know, technically branches within the army, infantry, armor, quartermaster, which is supply, medical service. And that's how we kind of came to learn more about the military and try and decide what, I mean, more about the army and try and decide which branch we would want to go. And when it came time, you know, spring of your senior year, you put your top requests of where you hope to go within the army. Um, and if, if the stars align and they need you and their space and all of your reports are good, then um, you can sometimes get your first choice. And I, I was fortunate enough to get my first choice, which was aviation. So once I graduated, you actually graduate and two or three days later, you have your commissioning ceremony. And then two or days later, you're, you're in the army, like you're in and going right after college. That's tremendous. I, this uh, 
Dave Tilley, and I, yeah. I was just going to ask you, did you know what your MOS or field interest was going to be at that stage? And, and you did. You wanted to, uh, you wanted to do, do aviation and yeah. aviation in, in the Army. Did, did you know then, too, that you wanted to do, uh, be on helicopters? I, I did. For the Army, of course, that's the, their, the majority of the aircraft are helicopters. And right. when we got just to meet the individuals that did that work and when we got to see what it was all about, I thought, boy, if I if I can qualify, that's what I want. And you do have to go through some um, physical assessment different than you would think. You have to have your eyes checked and you actually have to have your your reach checked. So like your sitting reach of your arms and your legs. So it's not so much on your height. It's it's what all you can reach that you can get to all the controls. So there's a little bit of a screening process, but I, I was able to pass the screening process. And um, yeah, I was just really, really excited. I mean, that that by far, I just couldn't think of anything else I would rather do. You know, it just was too exciting and fun looking. And I just, you know, that was the one from the moment I heard about it and learned about it. I don't know, Ginger, like I feel like every time I'm on a helicopter, they're not supposed to fly, right? I feel like they're fighting gravity at all times. So that in and of itself. Um, but so this is like what? This is the 1980s? Was that well, this, what's the time frame? Yeah, yeah. Late 80s. 1988 is when I graduated and went on to active duty. And, and I sorry to interrupt you, but like how many how many women pilots are there at this point, you know, in the army? Is that a you new know, thing at this point? It's yeah, it is relatively new. I was trying to go back at one point and find statistics. I have a picture and it's a picture of, I think, about 35 individuals that were in my flight class. And there were only two of us women in that class. So I think I figured it out. It's around two or three percent. But I would say, you know, yeah, maybe between two and five percent were females in in aviation at the time. And I think that was fairly representative of the overall service. There might've been a few more in other um, branches in the army, but I think that was about right, you know, around 5%. Wow. So, so what did that feel like, you know, being one of the first women, you know, pilots, you know, in this field, right? Did, did you feel the adversity? I mean, tell us about what that's like. You know, I have to, I think I have to credit my upbringing a little bit. So my family is four girls and a younger brother. And, you know, growing up, my dad, you know, pretty much treated us all equal with same expectation, um, you know, kind of regardless of gender in terms of helping around the house for everything that we did and even teaching us um, you know, just, just everything. And so when I went into it, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think too much about it. This was the thing that I, I wanted to do. I physically qualified. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, I didn't, I didn't walk around constantly thinking about it or noticing. I would say that certainly at times um, there was kind of a situation where you wouldn't, you know, I guess inherently it might've driven me a little more because I certainly wouldn't want to be the one that was like last in the class or couldn't pass the physical or couldn't do things, you know? So I guess in all honesty, yeah, there was probably some, maybe some unspoken, you know, I don't know if I would call it stigma or just, um, 
you're you're putting high expectations on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think we, we all did that, you know, Um, I, you know, I had a a female roommate and, you know, a couple other close friends, but, but certainly you, you, you wanted to, you wanted to be in the top half. I mean, certainly you want to be higher than that, but like, you didn't, you didn't want to be the reason the unit was running slow or the reason people, you know, something went awry with your whole group. Um, But I would say that I was fortunate also in that most of my classmates, you know, were very respectful, you know, just treated me well, um, you know, were friendly. There was not a lot of animosity. Um, I mean, any animosity, what am I saying? There wasn't any animosity, but it, you know, they just were very respectful. Like we were all there to learn and we were excited to learn and we worked alongside each other and we did it. Well, what was that like? Share, share some experiences of your, your flight time. Some, some of your, some of your memories there. Yeah, I mean, and how, was, how long, yeah. How long does it take yeah. to learn to be a pilot, to fly, mm-hmm. to fly a helicopter? I mean, you got to get pretty proficient, right? You have to be able to, Yes. Put troops down in very hostile uh, conditions, right? Taking fire possibly and yeah. right. And and so so talk a little bit about that. I always find it fascinating how you just you don't know much about helicopters, right? And then you become an expert. Right. Well, I mean, you're on your way to becoming an expert. You don't graduate yeah. flight school as an expert. You graduate with all the skills you need to keep growing. But flight school in and of itself was at the time about nine months. And broken down into different, you know, subject areas, you learned about weather and, you know, how to consider the weather in your flight. You learned about airspace and how to navigate airspace. You learned about hydraulics and aerodynamics. And, you know, so those were all broken down into different components. But it is about a nine-month course. One of my most fun memories from flight school is eventually at some point you go out with an instructor pilot several times. But eventually at some point you get to go solo. And at the time we were training in UH-1s and that is an aircraft that you can actually, you only need one pilot, even though there's two mm. seats, you know, you can do a single pilot in a Huey. And that was definitely a special time, kind of like a little, a little nerve wracking, right? Like maybe like when you went out and drove for the first time, but on a little more magnified level because you're in a, a helicopter and the school is in Southern Alabama. Um, so it's good. There's not a whole lot of mountainous terrain. It's all, you know, low valleys and things, but that was just really, uh, just a very, very fun day when you finally got to solo, go out by yourself, do everything by yourself, you know, come back in. I mean, we were all feeling pretty, pretty good about ourselves after we finished our, our solo flight. Um, that's one memory that sticks out. Then for me, my trajectory took me to Korea for my first duty station. So I was stationed about 20 minutes outside of south of Seoul, Korea. And we were a, um, a general aviation unit. So our, we were general support. So we would do everything from fly VIPs to sometimes fly supplies. And one of the duties at the time was to fly along the um, demilitarized zone. And we had to have special training to go to go on uh, up there. You know, it's a very specific route on a map you know, in space and you have to be trained on it. And then you have to be very careful because you do not want to go into North Korea because potentially bad things happen if you do that. So 
that was a time I really, really appreciated learning to fly the route, do the training to go up on the route. And I was fortunate enough to be able to take some of the military armistice committee members. They go to different places, which is why we had to learn the route so we could drop them off at their different checkpoints where they check on things up there. What, a, what an incredible experience to see the route to actually, you know, what a memory. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's at the time it was amazing. A lot of the country was not very well developed, like all the way out to the East coast on in Korea was not well developed. I think now there's a lot more um, infrastructure there, but at the time we were the ones that would bring food supplies or bring individuals. And you, you know, you pretty much needed to have everything you needed with you in the aircraft because there weren't resources. There are very few resources on the ground. How, how long were you over in Korea? That was a year-long tour, and that took me to, um, I believe that was, that would have been 90, so I would I would have left there in the fall of 1990 um, after Desert Storm kicked off. So that happened, or, or at least the, the buildup to Desert Storm happened while I was over there. So a lot of my friends, when they left, they went directly to some of the bigger duty stations in the United States, and then they went directly over to Saudi Arabia. So I definitely, I had a lot of peers that ended up there based on where they were stationed ahead of time. Right. And so um, you just got me thinking about, you know, ending up in North Korea and causing some international incident, Ginger, but fortunately yeah. you didn't. But uh, yes. I mean, what kind of survival training do, do uh, pilots get in the army? And do you guys go to SEER school and anything like that? At the time we would have just a basic block of survival training. So it would have yeah. been woven into our flight school. You could apply to go to SEER school. Those were all add-on schools that you could go to. So I didn't opt to do that at the time, just based on what was going on in the world and the type of aircraft I flew. So I did things like air assault school and I did jump school. Um, but the the full SEER course um, is definitely, um, that's definitely an add-on school, like three or four months. But we, we got some basic training, you know, basic guidance and training. And a lot of it, would have been pertinent just in our, you know, learning how to be an officer and a soldier, you know, it's kind of similar, but maybe at a little bit, you know, higher level for aviators. Right. <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Did, uh, during your, your time, um, piloting too, I imagine, did, did you do many, um, evening missions as well? I know when I, when I was in the army, one of my, uh, one of my friends, he was a medvac, uh, helicopter pilot and he he took me to fort riley kansas we did some uh you know touch and go uh medvac stops and and for me i just thought that was very challenging too trying to do everything with night vision goggles on yeah we did a little bit over there not a whole lot you could actually do nighttime flying we were in and around seoul and and it was actually kind of easy because that was such a big metropolitan area and it was a lot of light. Yep. So your ambient light kind of helped you. We did a little bit of goggle training there. I did, I did more goggle training when I got back to the United States and when I was at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So I would say not so much overseas. I think when, primarily because the technology back. was still a little young, you know? Oh yeah. It was pretty, yeah, that's right. It was pretty new then I was in, um, yeah mid nineties. Yeah. 
yeah. was uh, my time frame, and I went in after college. So I, I was wondering about that because I'm like, how how do they do this at night? It gave me a big headache wearing the night goggles, and you know. Yeah, it is. It's. It, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of energy. Like you don't think about it at the time, but then when you're done, you're just more fatigued. You know, it's a lot more fatiguing to be in that mode for a long time at night, but the technology is really amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing the difference it makes and what you can see and what you can do at night. So that's obviously the upside of it. And Ginger, were you mostly flying Hueys? Would you fly other helicopters? So, yes. Yeah. So in Korea, I flew Hueys. I actually came back and spent a year at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, and I went to the Military Intelligence Advanced Course. At the time, some aviators could do what they called dual track. So you could do aviation and military intelligence and MI. Um, and that would put you into a different um, kind of a different track you know, flying um, I, other aircraft. Uh, but in the end, I ended up at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And so there, it was all about helicopters again in UH-60. So when I when I got stationed at Fort Campbell, I did the qualification course, course for UH-60s and started flying UH-60s there. That, and that, uh, uh, at Huachuca, then you'd probably... Uh, uh, my, my area was military intelligence. And also you might be assigned with a linguist or a uh, doing direct finds. And Yeah, uh, well, we did a lot of basic learning about all the different yeah. kinds of like signal intelligence, human intelligence, you know, and there and again, there was this aviation track. And I'm not really sure if they if they still have it, but it had to do a little bit with um, imagery, like you'd fly planes that would help give imagery and and all that. Um, which now I think has been more incorporated in every unit. The the interesting thing about my time there, though, is that was during Desert Storm, and we all had top secret clearances. And so the interesting thing is we would go in, and they would give us a morning brief about the situation in Desert Storm that was a little bit different of what you might have heard on the news. You know, so you you could see CNN was just evolving then and you know, all the um, real-time footage and commentary, and then we would go in and we'd get kind of the real numbers and the real situation. Um, so it, it was just an interesting study in, you know, the media and what really happens. And it was just neat. I mean, oh, not yeah, bad. And be, being privy to that, yeah. that level of intel. Yeah, yeah. And, and situational awareness globally. Yeah, it was good. Tremendous. Yeah, well, yeah. what were some of the, uh, I guess, I guess high points and most difficult points when you were in service, if you think of some of your, uh, you know, most memorable and, but also some of your toughest. Yeah. The most memorable would certainly be some of the specific flying opportunities. So flying up on the DMZ, DMZ. we also flew one time in the mountains and I don't know what the mountain range is called, but we did um, a gun range actually. And I think that's one of the pictures I sent in. I don't know if you have them, but I got to fly and then the guys were practicing, you know, shooting out of the aircraft, but just the mountains and the area that I was, was incredible. So I really think, 
you know, being in Korea and flying, there was so much opportunity to do so many different types of flying that that was really neat. I, there was one flight I went on and, and this was definitely, I think, not usual, but it was two female pilots. So the, the pilot in command and myself were both females um, flying, which didn't happen again very often because you didn't have that many people. I enjoyed some of the flying back in the United States, but it was that it was different because it was peacetime. So it was all specifically around training. You didn't necessarily have a real time mission. You would just go out and do pretend missions because it was peacetime. So it was just, it was different. Um, but the thing that was exciting about that flying is more, we would do the flying in formation because that was Blackhawks and flying in formation. And I would say just meeting people from around the country and making friendships was really a highlight. You know, we are really good friends with people we met during that first tour of duty and, um, a couple that actually picked me up at a telephone booth. Okay. So I'm really dating myself, but at a telephone booth. So I was flying in to meet my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, but my then boyfriend who was coming back from desert store. And they picked me up on the way to the, um, airfield where the plane was coming in with all the troops. Um, so, and that's a couple that we still, you know, we vacation with a few times and get to visit. So certainly those lifelong friendships from different places in the country are a highlight. If I had to think of a low light, whew, um, I'm sure they're there. I would say, I, I, think of, I think of two things. One, what first jumped into my head was when I had to finish a 12 mile ruck march and I didn't think I was going to make it. Um, you had to do it as a last qualifying piece for air assault school. So you go and you learn how to repel out of helicopters and then, oh, by the way, you got to do a 12 mile ruck in under a certain amount of time. And um, let's just say running was not my strong suit at the time. <laughs> And I didn't think I was going to make it. And that was a hard one because if you didn't make it, you know, you didn't qualify. You had to get recycled back. And, you know, that was in the realm of failure. And those were just not, you know. Oh, and that's, and that's what you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, too, that you wanted to be that at least yeah. the top half and not. Yeah. So I, I made it, you know, just in time, walked across the finish line and had huge silver dollar size blisters on my heels um, afterwards. Um, but that was that was a tough one. And and I'll and I'll be honest, the other the other kind of tough memory that I recall is is an incident that I I don't know if I would necessarily call it harassment. Um well, I guess, yeah, I guess it would be qualified as harassment, but just um, I was in a situation once with a superior officer who we were in a big like staff meeting. So think all officers, all kind of at a certain level, you're all together, you know, it's like the brain trust. And, um, you know, he said some things that were inappropriate and, um it was just hard and awkward and unfortunate. And, you know, at the time, like somebody says something and you kind of try and just laugh it off, you know, and, and minimize it and don't think it's that big a deal. And, um, 
But then I even had other officers come up to me afterwards and apologize on his behalf. Um, so that was just, a, you know, it, it's hard and unfortunate and awkward, you know, I, you know, and it's something that happens and I think it happens anywhere in the world. And it's something that, you know, different people have to deal with on occasion. I think even regardless of gender at times, I mean, this was, you know, I think a little more related to that, but, um, but yeah, so that one, you know, I think what happened there is that I sort of lost respect for the commander and, and a little bit of frustration with the system. Because right. in essence, what happened is I ended up having to move to a different job. <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah. So there you have it. That would have been one of the kind of. Oh, that's hard. Less than fun times. Yeah. Yeah, very hard. Well, Ginger, well, we really appreciate you. Thank you, you know, for sharing something so personal too on the, on the difficult times in service. And, uh, I know we're, we're going to want to talk a little more too about, I mean, you've done amazing things helping our veterans post-service too. And, and the fact that your, you know, your husband right now is still serving or served, uh, is it over 30 yeah. years? And, yeah. Uh, and would like to to get to that. I know uh, we want to take just a brief moment to also thank our sponsors at Homeland Heroes Salute too that helps with uh, supporting our programming, and that's uh, Granite State Insurance, Rock Solid Insurance Protection for Business, and Service Credit Union. Become an owner today, and just one wanted to thank them and and. Uh, you know, talk a little bit now about, uh, well, talk, talk a little bit about your husband and also being a military spouse too. Your <laughs> that, that yeah. transition. Yeah. So we, you know, I served for about six years and after being married for a couple of years and not spending a whole lot of that time together, we decided to get out, um, continue our military service in the national guard, but get out mm -hmm. and, um, moved to New Hampshire and his parents had opened up a business and first and we're starting a business. And so we joined the family business and, and stayed, you know, here doing the guard thing for a few years. Um, and that was now we're into late nineties now, um, living here in New Hampshire, doing the guard again, it was challenging having us both in the service and spending time together and now raising kids and now trying to run a business. So eventually I decided to just take a break for a while and thought, well, maybe I can go back. Like they put you in the, what they call the IRR, the individual ready reserve. And you're kind of like the backup to the backup to the backup. Um, <laughs> you so I take a course here and there if you wanted or something. Right. Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I did that. And, um, and then, and he stayed in and he stayed in as a traditional guardsman. So just, you know, in mm -hmm. theory, one weekend a month and two weeks a year. But when you're a pilot, you have to maintain your proficiency. So really what that means is you sign up at least twice a week to fly every week because you have to keep your currency and you have to keep proficiency. And sometimes there's weather and aircraft and maintenance issues. So, you know, anyway, so so he stayed in and um, and it was good. You know, it was largely good. And then our world got 
more complicated again. And in 2004, he had to leave for four months of training. And then that was just on the heels of a year deployment. So he was gone for almost 16 months, 16. Yeah. 16 months. Um, and we had kids ages three to 10 at the time. Um, and you know, it was that, you know, that was definitely a challenging, a challenging time. We didn't have as much easy communication as we do now. You know, we didn't have FaceTime, didn't have all that right. kind of com- communicated via emails. Um, but, but it, you know, it was, I guess it was manageable. I mean, what I, what I discovered was a lot of neighbors that were happy to come around and help out when, you know, if I needed help, you know, there was, there was a nice groundswell of community support and engagement, which was wonderful, you know, wonderful and welcomed and great. That that is great in the military family. Yeah. 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 That was good. And so he's continued to stay in. He's a pilot as well. So he in here in, in New Hampshire, and actually I think he may be interviewed a few weeks from now, but he's a medevac pilot. That's the type of flying. That yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he's stayed in and continued through multiple deployments. Um, and they've all been over in Concord. Pardon me? Yes. He, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I visited the hangars there and yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Um you know, so those, you know, the year deploy, the year long deployments are hard. You know, I, I won't mince words on that. You know, you, you, there's a whole, I wouldn't say build up like in an excitement build up, but there's a whole pattern of things that happen kind of before they deploy that are sometimes hard. You know, they're getting ready to get go, you know, to get going and they have extra training and extra stress, you know, and then it actually gets, comes to a crescendo kind of right before they go. And then, once they leave, you kind of exhale because now the clock has started. Now they're actually gone. You're not talking about it anymore. Now you kind of have your new routine, whatever that's going to be. And then you just, you know, you make your way through the year and you you do the best you can on on both sides. He does the best he can over there and I do the best I can here, you know, and, and, you know, write letters and talk when you can and email and just try and stay as connected as you can. And then they come back and then that's always a little interesting and a little bit of kerfuffle because it's just complicated. You just figured out for a year how to live without this family member. And now you have to leave them back in, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and even though you love them, it's, it's still just complicated, right? It's just a different dynamic. Um, oh, just the adjusting and for kids too. I mean, for the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, yeah, my, uh, I know Phil knows this too. My my father went over to uh, Vietnam when uh, I was born in '66. Uh, he was over '67, uh, '68. So I I was so young when he went over that I didn't remember him when he was back. So I had this new person in my life. Yeah, yeah. And a, a lot, you know, a lot in a kid's life happens too in a year. And you know, when you when you reach the teen years, this this parental phenomena of, you know, teens are trying to pull away from their parents, but if you don't have the parent home to pull away from, it just, it just creates this odd thing. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's hard. It's just, it's hard. It's, it's doable, but it's hard. And so it is nice when you have community support. It is nice when you have 
like visibility in the community, people that kind of recognize or understand or that can, you know, encourage. Um, because particularly for the guard, you know, it can you can feel a little isolated. It can feel a little lonely because you're. it's not like a, a military base where everybody lives right next to each other, you know. Um, you know, the closest person I know, maybe a couple of towns over that is, you know, has a husband or has a, somebody deployed. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a little trickier, but it's but yeah, yeah, it's definitely a different feel from being yeah. on base and being uh, that I, I was both active and, and guard as well. Yeah, yeah. And that and there, there is that that difference of cohesiveness that you've got in a on a base community. Yeah, that that. Uh, and and you're today, I mean, very active also just in your life on giving back and helping helping yeah. veteran causes. Yeah, absolutely. I try. So that's what I was thinking of just talking about. So once my kids kind of got older and you know, I was able to get out a little more, that's really when I started working with Easter SEALs. And they were just developing their program at the time. And so I think what I brought to them was I had the military language because I had been in the military, but I had civilian language because I lived as a you know civilian now for 15 years. So I could kind of translate for the two. I could kind of talk back and forth between the two and help one understand the other and vice versa. So I started working with them, you know, in a, in a sort of, um, unformed position, you know, just kind of like a program manager. I wasn't a social worker. That's not my background. So I didn't do the, the care coordinating, but I did more liaison and sort of interpreting work is how I would think of it. Mm -hmm. And I did for them and with the, with the fundraising boards and all that. And that was just a real, um, a real pleasure. You know, it was, it was really such an encouragement as somebody with somebody still serving to see so many people in the community have energy and desire to support the military population. I mean, that was just a huge encouragement as a military family. It was just, it was great to see that. Um, and then just working with really good people that want to do good things for others. You know, they're certainly, you know, in waves, there's been an influx of individuals coming back from the Middle East with, you know, some with varying degrees of challenges. And so it's really kind of an honor or it's, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it exactly. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's humbling, but it's an honor and then it's encouraging. And then parts of it are fun to kind of be in that space. It's all kind of wrapped in one. <laughs> so Ginger, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what, what the sort of big challenges are in our veteran community here in New Hampshire, right? You've been doing this for a while now. Uh, what are you seeing out there? And where do you think the big challenges are? You know, I think in some ways, isolation is, is, is a challenge. I mean, we have a large veteran population, but they're spread by demographic of when they served. And so depending on when you served really in, informs a lot of your experience, um, you know, what you went through, what it was like and what you came back to. So I think there can be sort of a form of distance in that in some ways within the veteran population. Then you have the physical distance again, even though we're not a very big state, um, you know, we're, we're spread out and, 
you know, there might, I don't know how many people there are in my town that are veterans, but it's not always easy to connect with other military and veterans. And there are some longstanding institutions that have been really good for military and veterans, but the culture is changing. And so, so when I think of those institutions, um, you know, I guess this, the, the needs are different, you know, time available for people outside of their work is different. Um, interests outside of their work is different. So I don't know if I'm being clear enough. Like I think, I think a little bit about like the VFW or the American Legion, and those are just longstanding, wonderful institutions, but younger veterans are, are not as drawn to those. You know, they're not as drawn to the programs that they have or, or you know, what they offer socially. Um, so it's a challenge on both sides. It's a challenge for these longstanding institutions, but then it's also a challenge for the veteran to find a place, you know, where they, where they do belong, where they can find some connection, um, some camaraderie and some support in that way. So I, I think that's a challenge. I think another challenge, and I think this could, you know, this might be an ongoing challenge, you know, and I think it's a challenge really for all of us in this age of information overload, but there are so many services for military and veterans everywhere you look of every kind. I mean, everything from the VA medical center to the vet center, to the VA benefits, to the therapeutic horse riding, to the dog, um, you know, support to outdoor adventure. And it's a lot and it's wonderful. And yet it's still hard to find, you know, you, you could call up, you know, a hundred, you could get a room of a hundred veterans and I'm sure you'd find, you know, some percentage of them that still don't know about half of the programs, you know, so that sort of communication and awareness, I think, is an ongoing challenge. You know, again, I think even in our world, right, there's, there's, I mean, culturally, it's a challenge. There's so much information. It's hard to sift through it all to find what you want. Um, you know, I think word of mouth is is often still kind of the best and longstanding method and, and it travels far when something's really good and veterans talk about it and the word gets out um you know so it's very old-fashioned but i i think that's um that's that's one of one of the things i found at uh when when i was at hud but also at harbor care many times veterans are unaware of the vast uh resources available for help for them. Um, many are also very um, independent and not seeking that. Yeah. They're uh, and self-sufficient. Uh, proud of my friend uh, Phil here, who is, uh, I know you're aware of putting together an event, bringing a lot of the uh, veteran support groups together, because sometimes uh, you've got all these uh, groups that uh, they may not be aware of each other and where they can dovetail and, and exactly. help each other. And uh, yeah. and I know Phil's got an event uh, bringing them all together in, in May, right, Phil? Yeah, and this is the second yeah. time we're going to do it. We did it a year ago. Yeah. Um, I was surprised when I learned that a lot of the organizations just had never got together before. And uh, we did it a year ago and it worked because I'd say about half the organizations did something together that they'd never done before. 
you know, groups that were looking to do retreats, but didn't have the expertise, you know, got together yep. with groups that do retreats. Yeah. Groups like Veterans Count, you know, which Ginger, you've worked a lot with, with Veterans Count, you know, teamed up with the Equine Immersion folks uh, and actually worked together. So, you know, so, you know, if we had veterans come into equine immersion programs, finding out really for the first time that they had some issues they needed to work through that veterans count was then there to pick them up, you know, and say, hey, yeah. stay with us. We'll we'll help you through all of this. It's not just one weekend, right, at an equine immersion program. And so very excited about that. And I, Ginger, I think you explained that really well, you know, this this challenge to find services. I, I like the way that you explained it, that that has been you know, what I've seen out there as well, right? And and we should talk a little bit about the caregivers. I know that's something that you're passionate about. And and, and you and I have talked about this offline before, and I have this conversation all the time, which is, you know, how, how, how do we create an environment where, uh, you know, if a veteran finally decides, look, I want to try and get some help, you know, and I, maybe I do need some help and I'm going to try and get some. If they can't find it the first place they look, that that there is this net net to catch them, right, and help yeah. them sort of navigate that and get the care. I mean, talk a little bit about that and, and how do we get experienced caregivers who know what they're doing, right, and, and can handle this? Yeah, you know, I think that is an interesting challenge in terms of, I think one of the, when you asked what the challenges are for veterans, I would say one thing that came up when we did a, a survey recently would be culturally competent caregivers, you know? So when you talk about getting somebody in or getting them to the right service, you know, the more we can reach out and, and educate different providers, you know, mental health, physical health, you know, just people that, that work out in the community, the more we can help them be culturally competent. I think that is a good step because that's definitely something that was highlighted as kind of a frustration. And I think, you know, therein is a bit of the answer. The more competent they are, I think the more they know how to deal with the veteran and, and get them in. Um, I think your idea around connecting all the providers so that they have like this web of where they can reach out or not reach out, but like where they do reach out and then connect back to stronger services is really important because I can remember, you know, 15 years ago when all these efforts were starting, there was a lot of frustration about, oh, well, so-and-so is over here doing this methodology and this one has this modality. Um, but what we've learned over the last 15 years is, yeah, that that is the way to reach everybody because you're going to get different veterans at different touch points. Somebody that's going to go to a horse program is not going to be the same as the one that goes to a yoga program is not going to be the same, you know, that would go to a different type of, um, you know, social gathering event. And so I think the more that we broaden the offerings as the initial touch point for the veteran, and then if all those offerings are kind of interconnected so they know each other and they can funnel them to a care coordinator. I think that sounds like the dream right there, you know, many ways to outreach and then funnel to a central um, yeah. service. 
Yeah, no, that's well said, right? I mean, art therapy may be the perfect solution for one person, yeah, but not for somebody else. But then, but if they find their way to an art therapy program and it's not working, it would be great if there's somebody there to help and go to. Well, maybe you're really a good candidate for a dog, right? For a yeah, for a service dog, right? And let's work through that. And then maybe they are, but they can't afford it, right? But then a group like Veterans Count would be there to help, you know, to help pay for it if they're a good candidate for that. So, exactly. right, there's all these pieces and I it's just too much siloed activity uh, going on. But the, the good news is we're a small enough state that I'm optimistic that we can pull this together. And uh, Ginger, you probably heard uh, it just recently got announced. Uh, the governor announced his support for a campus in Franklin of affordable housing for yeah. veterans, right? Yeah, I had heard a little bit about that. On, right? And Easter Seals is going to be involved in that. It's an Easter Seals campus where, it's, where the work is going to go. And this gives us a very unique opportunity to have all of our service organizations on that campus so that any veteran is thinking, well, I wonder where I can get services. Hopefully they'll know Franklin, just call there, go there. They're going to be there, you know? Um, And so that, you know, hopefully will be part of the solution here uh, going forward. And we will be the first state in the country to have something like this, a campus of affordable housing where veterans are helping veterans and working together and all the services, including the VA and the state, are all there in one place. So very excited about that. Yeah, that that does sound exciting. That sounds that sounds great. I look forward to seeing how it evolves and grows for sure. Yeah, no, it, I mean, it could be as soon as 18 months from now. So we'll, uh, wow, we'll, we'll see how all of that goes, but I'm sure you'll be in the discussion at some point here. So, no, great stuff. Um, Ginger, we're, we're getting close to the end of the podcast here. Did we, uh, you know, I want to give you a chance to sort of address anything you want to talk about. You know, we asked you a lot of questions and uh, gave us a lot to think about. But is there anything you yeah. that we didn't cover that uh, that you'd like to share with us? I'm just looking at my own notes to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've covered a lot. You know what? What I really appreciate about this podcast is in having veterans on to tell their stories. I think that's part of this greater effort and important thing where we bridge the gap between civilians and military. You know, when they hear stories, they can understand what it's like. They can um, get a glimpse on the inside. Hopefully certain things will be, you know, demystified, right? Like veterans are just, you know, just like your, they are your neighbors sometimes here in the state, but you know, (laughs) you know, they're, they're a lot like you in many ways. They just have a slightly different job that sometimes asks a lot of them. Um, But I think to continue to kind of bridge those gaps in understanding and relating um, goes, goes a long way because in my experience with military and veteran communities, acknowledgement of their service is, is huge. You know, they don't necessarily want to be thanked in that way of, of, I mean, yes, it's good to be thanked, but it it can also be a little bit awkward, but I think it's, it's more that acknowledgement and engagement, you know, acknowledging their service, just recognizing it, seeing it, understanding it, talking about it. Um, 
and being able to relate is just huge for most of the military that I know. They just want people to be interested, to know that they matter. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. Um, so, right. yeah, so I well, do. We, I appreciate the podcast. Oh, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. Oh, no, no, we can't. We can't thank you enough for your, for your service, for your husband's service mm. and for all, all that you're continuing to do today for our, our veterans. And, and we're, I know Phil and I are just uh, incredibly appreciative of you joining us on, on the podcast and, and sharing, yeah, uh, sharing your story, sharing some very uh, personal moments. Yeah. And we're, we're well, grateful to have you. Yeah. And, and I do, I do appreciate the opportunity because like I said, I think it's important to hear stories. I think that's what brings us together as, as a community and as a country. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ginger. Uh, U.S. Army captain, uh, great service. We acknowledge your service and uh, a military spouse, uh, you know, so just just a wonderful family and, and then an advocate for veterans, right, in which you're a tireless advocate. And thank you for everything you do in that community as well. So great having you on the show. And uh, you're going to be starring along with 50 other veterans in a book that Swim of the Mission is about to bring out. So I hope everybody will check that out at some point as well. Yes. Um, but that's all I'm going to say about that. We'll, we'll leave it at that. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Really good to spend time with you. Thank you. Thanks, Ginger. Yeah. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. And Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Homeland Harris Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.